Well, good morning and welcome to Renewal Church. I'm Jared Kirk, the pastor here. I want to thank you for being with us today. To those of you who are parents who are here because it's Parents Weekend, thank you for all of the money you spent to send your kids to school so they could come to church here with us at Renewal. If they haven't said thank you, allow me to be the first. Thank you. Um, And thank you for joining us. We're glad to have you today. Now, we're in a series at Renewal Church called 40 Days with Jesus. And I want you to do me a favor as we get started with the message. Pull out this connection card that they just mentioned in the hosting. Because you're going to need this today. Because here's what I believe. That every person has a step of response to take when God speaks into your life. When you encounter the living God, God's going to call you to respond to that in some way. So I want you to fill this out and put it in the offering basket which is gonna come by a little bit later in the service. So uh, that's gonna be after the message today. So make sure and fill this out, whether you want the information on Halloween or maybe there's something deeper and more spiritual going on in your life that you need to respond to God to. Now, uh, this week we're looking at how Jesus perfectly obeyed his father and what it looks like for us to live with that same obedience to God. And much like our worship leader today, Emily, I wasn't a child that was known for obedience. When I was a little kid, I grew up out in the suburbs, and we had, we had a, a housing subdivision that we lived in. And my mom would send me outside. She would say, uh, you can ride your bikes, just don't go outside the neighborhood. Did anybody else have the, these instructions from your parents? Yes. And so what's the first thing you do? I would get on my bike I would call up my best friend, Brian Miller, and I would immediately leave the neighborhood. I would ride my bike down to the local convenience store to see how much I could steal. I had an issue with obedience as a child. And so what happened was, so some people are born rule followers and some are born rule breakers. I I married a rule follower, um, and that's been a huge blessing in my life. Um, to just kind of keep me on the straight and narrow. And it's been an enormous, unbelievable frustration in her life. Now, here's the thing is, when I became a Christian, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. When I became a Christian at about 16, 17 years of age, um, I I learned that there were all these sorts of kind of like rules that go with Christianity, and I didn't even know what they were. I was breaking things that I didn't even know were were rules that could be broken. It was just very confusing. And on top of that, as a born rule breaker, I was constantly feeling like a failure as a Christian because I was like, I'm bad at this, right? Like I stepped into this thing because of Jesus, and he was so he was so beautiful and compelling, but I was like, I just don't feel like I'm good at a, as a Christian at obeying God. I needed a bigger vision in my life for what obedience means and what obedience looks like. Now, here's my guess for your life, because I know for many of you that when we said, okay, the topic today is going to be obedience, you went, and you just threw up in your mouth a little bit. And, you, and no, no wonder, like, you've got a bad taste in your mouth when it comes to obedience. And it might be because you had some parents that were harsh and overbearing, and their love for you seemed conditioned on your obedience and you following the rules in your family. And so when somebody says that, you're like, man, I just don't want anything to do with that. Or just as likely, for many people, you were a part of church in the past. Now, at Renewal, every week we have people who have never been to church before. But in a, in, a, in, a, in a church of this size, I know most of you who have been to a church before. And for many of you, your experience was this. They talk about Jesus. They talk about forgiveness. They talk about grace. It's all God's free gift. It's all just, it's grace, 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 grace. And you become a Christian, so now follow all the rules. Ha, 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 we tricked you into it, sucker. Right? And like... And you came into this thing, and all of a sudden, it was so much more about the rules than it was about Jesus, and it left you with a bad taste in your mouth. We had um, a young woman who was a part of our church years ago who became a Christian, and she said, I feel like I keep breaking these invisible rules, and I don't even know what they are. 
And so she felt like a failure as a Christian because she was struggling with obedience. And so here's what, here's what, I, think, um, here's what I think needs to happen for you today. You need a bigger vision for obeying God in your life. One that's actually life-giving because Jesus said that when you come and follow him, he sets you free from sin and you gain freedom in your life. When you know the truth, the truth sets you free, right? And so many of us, our experience with Christianity has been, I've come to know the truth about Jesus and now I'm a slave to like 365 rules, one for every day of the year. So you need a greater vision for obedience in your life and what it looks like to follow and treasure God. We need a greater vision for obedience, now, there are, before we kind of dig into what that vision is, there are some actual commandments in the Bible. Can we, can we just acknowledge that? I'm not going to stand up here and say, like, you know, the Bible doesn't have any commandments. It's just fun. Like, no, listen, the Bible has all kinds of written commandments in them. In fact, God, gave, God values commandments highly enough that he gave us the Big Ten, you know, and it's like, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother, right? And so it's like, I don't see anybody going around going like, well, you know, I know the Bible says, but murder seems like a great idea. You know, we acknowledge that there's um, a good part to the commandments of God. So obedience for us is not about less than obeying the written commands of God, but it's about a greater vision for obedience that actually brings life and freedom in your life. It's bigger than a list of rules. And according to Jesus himself, Obedience is tied to loving God. So it's important as a Christian that we have this, this vision for obeying God in our life. Look at John 14, 15. It's in your teaching notes if you want to pull those out today. It's also, it's also on the screens. You have heard it said unto you. I'm not reading. I'm paraphrasing now. You have heard it said unto you that love is love. But I say unto you, love is obedience. Look at the commandments of Jesus. John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that sounds so foreign to us. And for some of you, you're like, man, obedience in God, like, I don't know, this is just weirding me out right now. Like, I didn't think this was a cult, but it's in the basement of a hotel, so I'm already a little suspicious. Like, what's happening here? Here's what's happening here is you have human relationships that don't have authority. They're just two people who love each other. And I think friendship is a great example of this. And so if your friend is like, hey, listen, we're friends, so now you have to obey me, you probably are in a cult, right? Like, that's weird. Like, that's not how friendship works. We also have relationships that are um, all authority and no love. Like if you join the military, I, I, I talked to somebody to, who, today who spent 20 years in the military, and we thank you for your service. But, um, you know, in those relationships, there's no expectation of love. You have to obey your commanding officer regardless of whether you love them or lo- enough, love them or not. Okay. And for many of us, we view our relationship with God as a relationship just of friends or of, or of peers, And so we think it should just all be emotion and feeling, but there's no authority in it. But in our human relationships, we do have an example of love and authority being mixed together. It's with parents. Parents to children and children to parents are a relationship that blends both love and authority. And so I have little kids in my home. So if my kids say to me, Daddy, we love you, 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 but they never obey me, then their words ring hollow. When you're a child, obedience is how you show love to your parents. And it happens, according to Jesus, we see this connection so closely here, the connection between obedience and love, that in our relationship with God, it's more like a relationship between parents and children than it is between two friends. There's both love and authority, which is why Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments, keep my commandments. In the Bible, love and obedience go together. 
It's how we express our love for him. So we need to obey God. But as we talked about, it's bigger than a list of rules. It's bigger than a list of commandments. It, it's it's a, a vision of obedience that's life-giving. And I want to give it to you right up front today in the message. Here it is. Write it down. Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. Um, yesterday, I went on a hike at Monadnock Mountain. We put my three-year-old in a backpack, one of these like baby things that she can sit in and ride along. And she's riding and riding, and she's not watching where she's going. And uh, just after like 10 or 15 minutes, my wife's carrying her. She says, Mommy, uh, my, my tummy hurts. And she starts going, Hoo, hoo, hoo. She almost threw up on the back of my wife's head. We were trusting God in the wilderness. We were praying about things. We were rebuking things. We were casting things out so that this girl wouldn't throw up all over the back of my wife's head. We were... Uh, Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. I don't have a great pivot. <laughs> you can tell. Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. And I, I believe that for some of you, this is going to be freeing. This is going to be life-giving today. This is going to give color and shape to what it means to obey God in a way that conveys your love for him. That in the Bible, obedience is not just about trying harder to fulfill the commandments or follow the rules. Obedience is not about trying. Obedience comes from trusting him more deeply. Obedience is the result of trusting, not trying. Now, I want you to open your Bible today. Every week in 40 Days with Jesus, I want you to come with an open Bible and a pen to take notes, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 4 as Jesus does this, as he trusts God in the wilderness and obeys him perfectly. And in Luke 4, it's also in your teaching notes, we're going to see a section that's called the temptation or the testing of Jesus. The, there's a little Greek word that's translated temptation. It can also be translated testing. It's not always immediately clear what's the best way to translate it. So this is the testing of Jesus or the temptation of Jesus. It's written by Luke. Luke was the most in-depth historian of the gospel writers. And a gospel is just an authorized biography of Jesus' life, authorized by God. He was a physician by training. He was a travel companion of the Apostle Paul, and he set out to put together an orderly account of Jesus' life. He likely interviewed Mary and Elizabeth. He was stopped in a town on his journeys that was about 13, 14 miles from where Mary lived, which is possibly why Luke's Gospels include the account of Jesus' birth and the other ones don't. He was an in-depth researcher. And he writes this account of Jesus' life. It's why his gospel is in chronological order. And it's also what we're reading together today, uh, this month, in the 40 Days with Jesus journal. Now, um, on your connection card that I mentioned, there's a next step on the back that says, I'm going to journal through the book of Luke every day. Now, um, I want to invite you to read through the book of Luke with us during 40 Days with Jesus. If you need a journal, we can send one to you electronically. Um, many of you have taken one already. And I want to encourage you and challenge you. Have this as an accomplishment in your life where you read through the entire life of Jesus one time. Even if you're not a Christian, wouldn't that be well to be an educated Westerner to read through the life of Jesus? But for Christians, it's more than that. For us, we believe it is God's changing power in our life. Okay, so let's look together in Luke to see how obedience is trusting God in the wilderness, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan River. Now, Jesus is about to launch his public ministry. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' life, Luke chapter 4. The very first public act in Jesus' life is his baptism. That happens in chapter 3. And that's what happens at the Jordan River. That's why it says he returned from the Jordan. It's where he was baptized. 
And the very next thing after his baptism is his testing or his temptation. Now think about this. A test is what determines what comes next in your life. Right? You, you, you take a test in school, you take the SATs or the ACTs, and they tell you based on one number what's next for you. Whether your future is, uh, whether you're going to Harvard or whether you're getting rejected like me and you're going, you know, you're going on to get your GED. The test determines what's next. God uh, is putting Jesus into a period of testing. And I believe that this is true for Christians as well, for human beings as well, that God will put you sometimes intentionally on purpose in a season of testing to determine what's next. And if you have learned the lessons and passed the test and your character is up to, up to snuff and you pass the bar, then God moves you on to what's next in your life. But if you don't, God will teach you the same lessons over again and there will be another season or period of testing. That's what happens with Jesus. For Jesus, this test comes right after his baptism. We mentioned that. And that's very important because God speaks words of promise over Jesus' life at his baptism. And he has to remember those words in the wilderness. He has to decide whether he will trust the words of God or be, um, be tempted to escape from his current circumstances. So look at the baptism with me. This is in your notes as well. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. One day when the crowds were being baptized... Jesus himself was baptized as he was praying. The heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. God speaks these words over Jesus' life and Jesus has to decide whether to trust God's words in the wilderness. You see, it's easy to believe at the baptism, but will you believe in the wilderness? That's the question. Now, Luke, the author here, is setting up a contrast between Jesus and the nation of Israel. You, gotta, you have to understand that that's happening to catch what Jesus is talking about as we progress through his temptation. See, Jesus is going into the wilderness just like the nation of Israel did. And Israel often failed to believe God in the wilderness. They failed to trust God's word. They failed to trust his intentions. They failed to trust his goodness. But Jesus now has an opportunity to go into the wilderness and succeed where the nation of Israel failed. Now let's continue in the text. It says, he, Jesus, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. God's spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And the wilderness in the Bible is the place of testing. It's a place where you learn who you really are and who you really trust. The wilderness is a place where your character is revealed and where you are shaped. The wilderness is a place of spiritual battle in God's book. The wilderness is a place of extended suffering or waiting. The wilderness is the in-between time when you've received his promises, but you're not yet in the promised land. That's the wilderness. You think about Israel. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, sort of like Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. They'd come out of Egypt, but they were not yet in the promised land. They're in the wilderness. They're in an in-between time, a waiting place, a place of suffering, a wilderness. And we in our lives, experience many wilderness-like places. Your wilderness might be unwanted singleness and the loneliness that comes with that. 
God's promised in his word. I set the lonely in families. And between this promise and its fulfillment is your singleness. And you're in a wilderness of singleness and of loneliness. And the question is, will you trust God? It could be the wilderness of childlessness. When you desperately want to have children and have a family, but it's not happening or it's not happening the way that you want it or in the timing that you want it, will you trust God? Chronic disease is a wilderness. The suffering and the pain day after day, the hopelessness, the wondering if it will ever end. God, when will you heal me? Because those are all these promises of God as a healer in the Bible. And so you've received the promises, but you haven't received the fulfillment of the promises. You're in between. It's a wilderness. There's a wilderness of depression. There's wilderness of dead-end jobs where you think, God, this could not be all you have for my life. You must have more. Or you might have a very high-paying job, but you have no sense of significance in your job at all. And it feels like a wilderness, like, God, what am I doing here? I feel like I'm in between where I am and where you want me. Financial troubles and poverty is a wilderness, Extended spiritual dryness where you have no sense of the presence of God in your life is a wilderness. It's where you are in between the promise and the promised land. Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. And the reason for that is that every wilderness is a question. Every wilderness is a question. Will I trust God? Or will I escape from the intensity of my suffering? Will I try to come up with a better plan than God's plan? Will I test God to make him prove his promises to me in the middle of my suffering? Or will I trust God? Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. And I want you to notice this. This cannot be overstated, that God leads Jesus into the wilderness. The wilderness is not a detour from God's good plan for Jesus' life. And there are times and places and seasons where God leads you into the wilderness on purpose. And you think, this, I, I am suffering, I am hurting so bad right now. There is no way this is God's plan for my life. But it was a plan, part of God's plan for Jesus' life. You know, I believe this. God has things that he wants to accomplish in your life that he can only accomplish in the wilderness. Do you believe that? When God leads you into the wilderness, it is not to abandon you, but to shape you. And so if the wilderness was part of God's good plan for Jesus' life, Jesus who was perfectly obedient to the Father, then what makes us think that we will escape the wilderness in our own lives? No, for us, just as for Jesus, obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. And what I want you to see is how this plays, this thought that obedience is trusting God in the wilderness, it plays out over three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And we're going to look at them each in turn. Now, the first temptation starts in verse 3, so let's read that together. Then the devil said to him, to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. You see, Jesus has been fasting 40 days. That's about the limit of human endurance. And so he's on the edge of possibly dying. He's been led there by God, 
And so Jesus feels no freedom to use his power to escape from the suffering that God has ordained for him before it is his time. That's the real temptation. Jesus, will you use your power to escape from the suffering that God has ordained for you in the wilderness? And Jesus quotes the devil here, Deuteronomy 8.3. Now, here's how these quotations work in the Bible. Um, it, 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 it's basically a hyperlink to a whole world of thought. And I, that's really not an exaggeration. It's actually a beautiful illustration of how the Bible works. Jesus can just quote Deuteronomy 3, and people who know Deuteronomy, like all of the Jews who are listening to and reading and writing these scriptures, would instantly know everything that happened in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and they would say, okay, you know, this is all about the wilderness wanderings and the sufferings and the manna from heaven, and for us, we don't know that. So we have to go back and look at what Jesus was referencing, and he does, listen to how Jesus... Um, Quote scripture to the devil in order to resist this temptation, Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you, now this is what Jesus quotes, that people do not live by bread alone, rather by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so the Israelites, uh, they grumbled because they were hungry. They literally said to God, you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. That's what you've done. Their suffering made them doubt that God was good and that he was with them. But where Israel fails to trust God, Jesus has this sort of logic. If God has called me his beloved son and he's led me into the wilderness, he will provide what I need and he will, he will take me out of this wilderness and this suffering in his perfect timing. You remember at the baptism, God has just told Jesus, you are my beloved son, but it never feels like that in the wilderness. When you are in the wilderness, it does not feel like you are God's beloved child. Yet here's Jesus' perfect obedience. Jesus would rather suffer in obedience than to survive and disobey God. That's the level of the obedience of Jesus. He would rather suffer in obedience than survive and disobey God. He refuses to blunt the edge of suffering that God has ordained for him. He won't escape it. When God leads you into the wilderness, will you do anything to escape the suffering of it? You see, we often sin when we are trying to escape the suffering of our wilderness. Jesus could turn stones into bread. Humans can't turn stones into bread. But humans can turn barley into whiskey. We can turn grapes into wine. And we will often do that specifically to escape from the suffering of our wilderness. We just don't want to feel the pain of it anymore. We just want to, we want to blunt the edge of suffering and pain in our lives. Maybe that's not your thing. We escape from the suffering with uh, online shopping, with sex, with gambling, with alcohol, with social media, with games on our phones, with harder drugs. You know what we call it? We call it checking out. We're saying, I don't want to experience the reality that God has ordained for my life anymore. I can't take it anymore. I need to just get out of it. 
You see, we often think of sin as just breaking the rules, and it is, but there's something more profound happening here. We're doing those things because we're escaping the wilderness. We're trying to escape the pain of the wilderness, and that's where sin is not trusting God. And so the questions for us, will you try to escape from the wilderness of poverty and alcohol? Will you try to escape from the wilderness of singleness into the arms of a stranger? Will you try to escape from the wilderness of insignificance into wild get-rich schemes? Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. And that's the first temptation. Jesus wins this first round with the devil. He refuses to blunt his suffering in an illegitimate way. His father's words sustain him through his suffering. But the test is not over. There is a second temptation. And it starts in verse 5. Let's look at it now. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glorious kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord and serve him only. Now, for a temptation to be a temptation, you have to be tempted by it. Isn't that profound wisdom? I thought of that all by myself, right? So what's the temptation here, right? What, you know, what is the temptation for Jesus to say like, yeah, I've always wanted to worship Satan. Let me just do that. Like, that's not the temptation here, okay? The second temptation is to come up with a different plan than God's plan, one that does not involve suffering in the wilderness. You notice that what, what, what the devil offers to Jesus is a plan that involves a crown, but not a cross. That's the real temptation. There's another plan. You know this suffering in the wilderness that God has you going through right now? You know, you couldn't possibly be God's beloved son. Like, is this what he would do to his son? No, 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 no. I got a different plan, one that promises you glory, but not suffering. And so if the the first temptation was to escape from the suffering, the second temptation is to go around it, to come up with a different plan. You know, when you're in the wilderness, there's all sorts of ways that you can... um, you can, be, you can be sucked into plans that are not God's plan for you. A plan to take a shortcut through life that promises glory without suffering. It might be that promises authority without servanthood. It's any plan that promises the crown without a cross. And this is very shocking to our modern ears, but that is equivalent to worshiping the devil. Because, the, and see, that's actually really some of the power of these stories, because you, if you're here and you're a secular person, you might think like, man, this is old superstitious. Like, there's, there's a depth to these stories. There's a reason that they have resonated with people for thousands of years. You see, it's not just that um, it's like devil worship is like, oh, you know, I'm going to go up to Salem. Halloween's coming up. It's going to be a blast. I'm going to put on black. I'm going I'm to sacrifice a goat to Satan. Right? Like, that's not the real temptation of it. No, it's this binary choice in life of, am I going to submit to God's plan or am I going to invent my own plans and go around the suffering that God has ordained for me? So you're either submitting to God's plans or you're following the plans of the devil. You're like, wow, I didn't think church was going to get that real today. Deuteronomy 6, 12 through 13 is what Jesus quotes to answer the devil. He says, when you have eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. It doesn't matter what plan the devil offers you. There's only one God and you serve him by obeying him. You serve him. That's what Jesus says. You, you know, you, you fear the Lord your God, you serve him. You either serve him or you serve your enemy. 
And so let me ask you, where has your obedience to God been painful? Where have you been tempted to go around God's plan for your life? What shortcut have you been tempted to take? Where has obedience caused suffering in your life? Those of you, um, and there are many of you in our church who have said, I'm going to stay in this city. I'm not going to use this city and then leave it. To, I'm not going to get what I want from this city. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to get my relationships. I'm going to get, um, and, you know, and then just leave it. There's a, there are people in this church who have said, I am going to stay and love this city. And when you are one of those people that says, God, I'm in no matter what it costs me, there is a, there is a cost of obedience to following God. Many of you know the hardship of responding with love and charity when you are reviled and hated by neighbors. Some of you know the cost of being suspected of bigotry by uninformed coworkers. All of us know the, the pain of being stuck in an incredibly small living space. Some of you want to buy a place to live and you can't. Some of you are still single while all of your friends in Tennessee, it seems, have found their perfect soulmate. I want to encourage you as your pastor, be careful of any plan that promises you a crown but not a cross. That's just not the way of Jesus. It's too easy to compromise on who you marry. And just, we say this every week. Let's say it again. It is better to be single than to marry the wrong person. Don't compromise on who you marry. You can compromise when you buy a car. That's okay. You're like, I wanted red. I wanted the red car, like blue car. Okay, not a big deal. You're like, oh, I really wanted a godly person who loves God and shares my values to the depth of their core, and they're going to be with me for the rest of my life. They're going to lift me up. They're a person who forgives, who's just, like, just shaped by forgiveness so that when I mess up my life, they're going to forgive me. You know, a person who's like, you know, my life is not about me. It's about serving other people. And when I manage my money, I want to manage it for God's glory and to be generous to other people, not so that I can have the nicest things. And too many times people in our church say, you know, but there's a blue one available. Turn to your neighbor, tell them, don't compromise. Go ahead, right now, tell them, don't compromise. If you're sitting next to your compromise, don't tell them that. (laughs) I just broke up some couples in here. You know, it's too easy to compromise to come up with another plan. It's easy to compromise on your beliefs and values at work so that you fit in. It's too easy to try to find a way around the suffering of the wilderness. Those of you who are in it today, let me tell you, I know it's tempting to escape from it. It's tempting to go around it, but you must go through it. Obedience is trusting him in the wilderness. Don't compromise. Okay, let's look at the third and final temptation of Jesus. Verse 9, then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with your hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Now notice here, now, um, now, now the devil is, uh, he's like, oh, you want to quote scripture? Here's a scripture, and he just throws one out to you. There's, a, there's an interesting um, thought in this, which is that um, if you know a few verses, you don't know enough to resist the devil. Like, in, like, unless you have this deep and abiding knowledge of the word of God that comes from reading God's word every day and studying it and soaking in it, then anyone could proof text you and convince you of anything. The reason Jesus is able to, to resist this, like, devil, like, throwing out a quote at him is because he knows the depth of the word of God. 
And so he responds. The scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity to came. Opportunity came. The third temptation of Jesus is to make God prove his promises through a miracle or a sign. God has already given Jesus his good word at his baptism. You are my beloved son. But here, as Jesus is suffering in the wilderness, Satan implies that to be the beloved son means not suffering. It's as though Satan is saying, um, you know, Jesus, you're not even supposed to stub your toe on a rock. That's what the Psalms say. Yet here you are, suffering in the wilderness, on the edge of death because you're not eating. How, you, know, you know, are you really God's beloved son? You should check and see if those promises in the Psalms are really about you. You should make God prove it through a miracle. Then you would know. You should make God prove that he loves you. Then you would know. His word's not enough. You can't trust that. You need to know. Jesus, again, replies from Deuteronomy 6.16, which itself is a reference to Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the people complain about not having water. But when they, when they put the Lord to the test, it's something very specific. Listen to what it means to put the Lord to the test. Exodus 17.7. 7. Moses named the place Massah, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing or quarreling. Because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? Testing the Lord is asking, is God really here with us? Is God really with me in the wilderness? Satan is inviting Jesus to doubt whether God is really with him in the wilderness. He's saying, are you really his son? Because you're suffering an awful lot. Make God prove it. The ultimate temptation of the wilderness, now listen, the ultimate temptation of the wilderness is to doubt that God is there with you. In your wilderness, I wonder if you have wondered, is God really with me here or not? I don't know if he sees me. I don't know if he hears me. This must be all a big mistake. You know, if I'm suffering this much, it must mean that God's not guiding my life. But trusting God is trusting his good word. Trusting God is saying, I don't need any more proof than what God has said because he's God and so his word is enough for me. Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. It's trusting God's good word. You know, that, that's actually... Um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the first man and the first woman, God says, um, you know, you can eat of any tree in the, whole, in the whole garden. There's just one tree that you can't eat from, and it's for your good so that you don't die. And Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and there's, again, hear the depth in these stories. He says, did God really say? Can you really trust God's good word? What kind of plan is this for you, that you can have every tree but not this one? What's God keeping from you? Adam and Eve doubt God's good word. They don't trust God and they sin. Obedience is trusting God in the wilderness. And I hope that today, whatever wilderness you are in, you will trust him in the midst of your difficulties. Don't try to escape from your pain. Don't try to come up with a better plan to go around it. Don't make God prove that he loves you. But trust him in the middle of the wilderness. Believe he is working things out for your good. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up at this time. We're going to sing a song in just a minute about surrendering to God. It's a famous song, I Surrender All. And I'm going to give you an opportunity 
to pour out your heart to him and say, God, where I am in my life right now, I surrender it to you. I don't, I don't need a better plan than the plan you've given me. I believe you're working all things out. But right now, I want to encourage you that you can trust God. And it's not a blind trust. It's not God just saying, hey, listen, you need to trust a little bit more. You need to try a little harder to trust. He gives us reasons to trust. You can trust him because he sent his own son to die on the cross in your place so that you could have a relationship with God. Jesus suffered through the wilderness of the cross so that we could have the promised land of God's good inheritance that he gives to us. We could know God. We could have a relationship with God. Now, we've talked a lot about obedience today, and rightfully so, because the Bible talks a lot about obedience and about how our love for him is proved by our obedience to him. But most people in the United States, around the world, make the mistake of thinking this, God loves people who are good at obeying him. Listen, a good earthly father doesn't love his good kids and hate his bad kids. Right? A good earthly father loves his good kids and his bad kids, and he has a heart for his bad kids to change. Your heavenly father doesn't love good people and hate bad people. God just loves people. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says God is love. Or the famous verse, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. And we hear that and we think, you know, for God so loved the people who are just the rule followers, who are so good at following all the rules, that's the people God loves. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus was obedient to go to the cross and he died on the cross so that rule breakers could be forgiven, but he also died on the cross so that self-righteous rule followers could be forgiven too. Jesus died so that everyone could be brought to God. We are made right with God, not by our obedience, but by Jesus' perfect obedience on the cross. Romans 5.19 says this, because one person disobeyed God, that's Adam, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Who's that one other person? It's Jesus. Because of his obedience, you will be made righteous. Adam failed the test in the garden, but Jesus succeeded in obeying God in the wilderness. Jesus endured the ultimate wilderness of the cross. The cross is where he was disconnected from the power and presence of God. In a, in a very real sense, Jesus experienced hell. He, was, he, he waded through the wilderness of hell to bring us back to the Father. He obeyed perfectly so that God would treat us according to the righteousness of Christ and not according to our own wilderness failures. Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father. Jesus wandered the wilderness of hell so that we could trust God's goodness in the middle of our wilderness and say his word, his deeds, his promises are enough. And it's my hope and my prayer that that will give you the faith you need to trust God in your wilderness.